If we imagine ourselves in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at the site of the crash of United Flight 93, we're told the first thing we see from just outside the front entry of the Memorial Chapel, and the first sign that this is not just a farmhouse, is the impressive bell tower at the top of which rests what Father Alphonse Mascherino dubbed the Thunder Bell. That title and the phrase, the voice of Flight 93, are painted on the bell. As Mascherino told visitors to the chapel, the bell provides a mystical relation between the chapel and the crash site, as its ring can be heard several miles away on the hill where the plane went down. He told congregations that the crash site is visible from the top of the 44-foot steel belfry. Numerous times when Dr. Alexander Riley was in attendance, Father Mascherino invited someone from the congregation to ring the bell on exiting the chapel as a way of symbolically expressing unity with the deed of the passengers. In doing so, he told them they affirmed the will never to forget their heroism and to propagate that message to those who had not yet heard it. I see the stars I hear the In his concluding remarks to such congregations, Father Mascherino quotes the hymn, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. And he explains, thunder on the mountain is the message of Flight 93. As the plane crashed in the fields of Shanksville, it exploded and could be heard all across the hills and shook the houses and people heard it for miles around and it was felt in Frostburg, Maryland, 35 miles from here. It registered on the Richter scale. That's how powerful is the message of Flight 93. In the early days of the chapel, he tells them, visitors would sometimes ask him, What's that sound, as the bell tolled? His response, it's the voice of Flight 93. Words from the study, Angel Patriots, the crash of United Flight 93 and the myth of America, by Alexander Riley, professor of sociology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg. And here precisely is the tension. A bell as the voice of Flight 93. The passengers are no longer able to speak to tell their stories of the horrific experience on September 11, 2001. And Dr. Riley helps us understand the paradoxes of such events. It is something of a cliché to say that things as awful as the 9-11 attacks are beyond description, he writes. One book on the topic puts it this way. September 11th is precisely the kind of event that defies representation. In the moment, this certainly seemed to be so for many who fully understood the reaction of CNN reporter Aaron Brown on witnessing the collapse of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 
Good Lord! A six-second pause, which, on live air, seemed an eternity. There are no words. And yet it is not so. There are always words, and there are always representations. Even to say there are no words is to produce words that inevitably spin a web of meaning and interpretation. In this case, stunned horror around the event described by these words. Like any other events that would acquire meaning, the attacks of 9-11 and the specific portion of those events that constituted the crash of United Flight 93, the fourth hijacked plane in the day's terrorist attack, and the only one that did not hit its intended target, crashing instead in a field in southwest Pennsylvania, call for representation in order to exist in the human world. Without it, they would not be. No events speak for themselves, and no historical memory descends to us from the heavens, however much we might cloak such decision-making in the language of the acts of God or nature that is culturally imperative for us. Events become events, and then events of a particular moral tenor, with a particular cast of characters, relationships, and meanings. Only when we use the tools of our culture to make them into such things. The most basic of those tools are the stories we tell about who we are and the symbols and characters that make them up. These stories are like the air we breathe, so self-evident to us that we have trouble clearly articulating their plots and characters to listeners not already saturated in them as we are. Humans have been telling themselves such stories and fitting events into the frameworks provided by those stories for a very long time, and the basic ways in which the process works have changed relatively little since the beginning. We had a chance to speak with Dr. Riley about his book when it was published in 2015 and what he had discovered in exploring the crash of Flight 93 and ways it was being memorialized at the site in Shanksville, a book filled with remarkable stories and keen insights. Now, in light of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we spoke with Dr. Riley again to see what was the same and what might have changed in his assessments and we began with the question so many of us are asking each other, does it seem like it's been 20 years? It both does and it doesn't. It's, it's funny how we, we mark these particular anniversaries. One of the times that I spoke with you, it might have been the first time that I spoke with you for the radio about the book and about the research was at the 10-year anniversary. And so it's this convenient 10-year, 20-year, 30-year that, that seems to make some kind of innate sense to us. And yet every year it's a little different for me, I think. And so even, you know, just moving from my book was published in 2015, I think, finally, after working on it for what seemed like forever. And every year since then, I think there have been new pieces of it that come into my head and take on a certain kind of precedence and, and certainly stuff disappears I think now it's, there's certainly some recollection for lots of people, and I would include myself here, that it's just, it's just remarkable that that much time has passed. And one of the things I've reflected on a lot this year, maybe just because of the fact that it is that round 20-year number, 
I've, I've done some work to try to put it into the context of my own life trajectory. As we, you know, we, we tend to do this stuff with big collective memories. They fit for us into not just, the, in this case, a national collective memory, but into a personal memory as well, you know, things that, are, that were going on in our own lives. And one of the things that's really occurred to me this year is just the sense that this thing that seemed so unbelievably important to me when it happened, and obviously probably seemed that way to a fair number of other Americans, too, especially folks who were really closely affected. And, and certainly there were probably many, many people who were affected by it much more directly than I was because they, they may have lost family members that day or may have had other connections to what happened at the, at the crash sites and so forth. But it, there's been a kind of humbling sense for me this year of just recognizing that this thing that seemed so undeniably centrally important in the story of the country and in the story certainly of my life, maybe in the, in the story of the world because of the ramifications it had for our interactions over in, in the Middle East and elsewhere, that after 20 years, it seems that a lot of that might have been hubris of a certain sort in the same way that I think every generation probably feels when the folks who were paying attention and were, were alert and were at the right span in their lives when the Kennedy assassination happened or when, as was the case for my grandmother, who I heard endlessly about this particular piece of the national story that intersected really powerfully in her own life, Pearl Harbor happened, and people were riveted, and they thought they had that same sense. And yet there's this realization that time passes, and the memories dim, even if we've done lots of collective work to try to keep that from happening. Inevitably, it does happen that our attention span moves on to other things, and Sure, there's still the memorials and there's still films that we can see and books we can read and so forth, but lots of other things take on more urgency. And so there's, there's a way in which it, it now resonates in a way, I'd say maybe in a way that I, I would call cultural humility or personal humility, personal historical humility, because of the fact that so much time has gone by and now it's, it's so apparent that we've moved on in lots of ways. And for better or worse, we've incorporated it in whatever ways we have into our political life and our cultural life and into our collective memory, and things continue. And that's inevitable. That's the way, that's the way human cultures operate. So that's a really profound thing, I think. For It certainly has been for me, and I'm imagining it must be for other folks as well, just to, to sit at this point on the trajectory and go, wow, this thing that really was so central for me. I now have kids coming in in my classes at Bucknell this year who weren't born when it happened. So literally everything that they know about it comes from a book or a YouTube video or from somebody who was around at the time telling them something about it. Inevitably, that, that affects what they think about it and how important, how meaningful it is in their lives. So the mortality of the, of the event, I think, is, is making itself felt on me in yet another way. That was really, we talked a good deal about that, I remember, at the 10-year anniversary, in large part because that's what the book is about, the collective memorialization of these, these horrible acts of massive loss of life and huge tragedies. So mortality is centrally a part of that story in that way, obviously. All the people who died that day and all the people who's whose lives were fundamentally disrupted. But you can also talk about it in the sense of even for the people like myself who survived and who weren't incredibly endangered personally on that day, it fits into the story of the, the finitude of our own lives, if you will, and the, the finitude of the, the expanse of the things that we consider fundamentally meaningful. All those things have their day, and then suddenly 20 years have gone by. And again, you have these fresh-faced 18-year-old kids in my classes who have a kind of look of marvel on their face if I start talking to them about some of this stuff, like, wow, that's, 
yeah, I've heard something about that, but it's it's interesting to me to hear someone who's so clearly marked by it because it's so distant from my life. And yet the lessons that you were able to help us draw from United Flight 93, the way we as humans in general, as you suggest, memorialize these events, the stories, the way we tell stories, the way we give them meaning. And I love the way the book begins because you talk about always, and we hear people stuttering today on on news programs about uh, storms. There there aren't any words because it's just, it's. I just don't know, right, you know that kind right. of thing. And you remind us that, yes, that's true, but we have to tell stories about these events. We always find words. Yeah, it's true. And even though, as, as I was just saying, even though the words in time, the, the stories might fade or get a little more less, less bright than they were, the point is a good one that it's, this is one example of something that seems to be a more or less eternal feature of human societies, that when, when remarkable things happen to us, whether in remarkable mean either awful or glorious things happen, we, we do this, we engage in this, the same set of ritualistic narrative-producing activities. And again, that, I don't think there's anything more deeply human than that, the, the need to have stories and to tell stories about, about our lives and about things that have happened to us. Maybe that's why, that's almost certainly one of the reasons why I'm I'm a little melancholic this year, and I'm sort of reflecting in the sense that I was just describing of how there's a, there's a little bit of a sense that I have of, and not the disappearance, but just the, the fading off into the distance of this thing in this set of stories that were so vibrantly, incredibly important for me, especially in the, in the wake of the event, but that remain that way for, for years afterwards, and that are still today when, when I go back to them. One of the remarkable things is that the stories don't as long as we have them and you can find an artifact that's got them on a page or you've got someone who can still tell the story, they can still remain very vibrant and very powerful. I think the fading has to do with just, again, as the collection of narratives grows as it does every year and the books about 9-11 find themselves on a shelf that's even further away from our death. And, you know, inevitably we fill up the desk with other books that have to do with more recent events and interests and so forth. The stories themselves, though, remain remain profound. I can still go back and listen to recordings that I made of conversations with Father Alphonse Mascherino, who was the founder of the Flight 93 Chapel out in Shanksville that I, I d- devoted a whole chapter in my book to, and who I, I spent a huge amount of time talking with Father Fonzie and just hanging out there at the chapel to see what was going on in his effort to try to commemorate. I still have all those files on my computer, and I can go and listen to them. And many of them are especially poignant now that he's been gone now for eight years. And so there's a greater poignancy and a a melancholy added to those stories and to hearing some of the things. Even though I've listened to some of those recordings uh, dozens of times, I certainly listened to them a lot while I was writing the book, but I'll, I'll occasionally go back and listen to them even now. So the, the stories remain vibrant, and they remain very, uh, very moving. And just to hear him discuss one of the stories that I told in the chapter in the book that's, uh, that's about his chapel and that I've retold probably dozens of times in when I was giving conference papers or doing other talks about 9-11, the story that he told me about the founding of the chapel when he was, he was running around out there in the wake of the crash of Flight 93 and trying to, to help in some of the first responder activity that was going on, trying to find everything that he could do just as a member of the local community to participate in the effort to, to try to help. And just this uh, strike of lightning feeling that he had 
driving by this old abandoned storage house. It was a grain house that was up for sale. And, and just in a in an instant, having the the feeling, the thought that that could I could I'm going to buy that place and I'm going to turn it into a memorial to the people who were on that plane. And the way he told the story was just it was electrifying every single time because he he would emphasize the fact that it was that sudden. And Father Fonzie was a was a priest, and so had a, a deep religious life, and so it, it very clearly for him had religious significance that the thing appeared to him the way that it was. All of the work that he did out there for the more than a decade that was left to him in his life from the time he established the chapel until he died in, in 2013 was, was fueled by that same energy. It's a, it's a story that still chills me and excites me, and, and just you're, you're wrapped when you, when you hear those kinds of narratives. And that's at their best. Those are, the, those are the narratives that I think most effectively commemorate those kinds of things in our history. And maybe I'll, I mean, I'll, if not contradict, I'll at least speak back a little bit to the, the melancholic me who was speaking initially to the first question and say, that's really, it's still possible to go back. And I mean, even for events for me, for example, that I was not present for, the Pearl Harbor attack, which I, I learned about as a, a young boy in stories from my grandma and I read about in school and I saw movies about and documentaries and so forth. Those things can all live again in the, in the well-done narratives that were produced about the events by, by people who, who, who took the time and, and had the skill to be able to craft those kinds of profound narratives. Certainly when we hear about a chapel and someone filled with a kind of revelatory vision or moment, we also think then, does it have anything to do with the passengers, the victims, as martyrs? Did it have something to do with self-sacrifice and the sense of sacrificing for something larger as a result of being a member of a community or a country? Absolutely. The, certainly the story of what happened, the narrative that, that emerged about what happened on, on Flight 93 resonated with so many other pieces of our common national memory, our common national sense of our identity. I mean, one of the things, the other things that I talked about in the book was how at one and the same time when collective efforts are underway to try to memorialize some event and to fit it into some of this collectively held cultural information about who we are, what kinds of characteristics we, we consider heroic, the civil religious narrative, which you're, you, you were hinting at just now in talking about the Flight 93, the status of the Flight 93 heroic passengers uh, and crew. How do we make sense of what they did within a larger set of stories and meanings about American civil religious identity? All of that stuff is going on at the same time as there are inevitably conflicts over those meanings. And so there are people who are, ch- there are other narratives, counter narratives, if you will, that are emerging to challenge even some of the most basic elements of those narratives. And that's, that may be another one of the things that happens inevitably over time to, to make some pieces of the narrative inevitably fade a little bit or to become less, just to have less power and energy perhaps than they did when, when those narratives first emerged, because the background, the tapestry, the cultural tapestry upon which any of those individual collective events is described, any particular tragedy or what have you, is described with reference to this larger cultural collection of stories. That larger tapestry is always changing. It's always being modified. And so some things that make intimate sense to huge numbers of people at a certain moment, you know, to talk about the Flight 93 passengers as 
civil religious martyrs who fit into some of the same kinds of stories that we used to more or less unanimously accept about the meaning of other tremendously important events in national history, the American participation in World War II or the Civil War, or you can fit in a whole bunch of other uh, historical events into that collection. Some of the ways in which those narratives resonated with those other stories, that gets complicated as time goes on. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of untangling. I'd, I'd probably have to sit down and write another book now, 20 years on, about how the broader base of narratives had changed in particular ways to make the, the specific set of Flight 93 and then more broadly 9-11, September 11, 2001 narratives make a different sense for us now. So that when those 18-year-old college kids that I that I have in my classes this year, when they go about learning about 9-11 and they go to consult the books and the, and the movies and, and so forth, they'll be building with a different set of, uh, of references than, than we had 20 years ago. Some of the stuff is the same, but some of it inevitably changes. Maybe that's another piece that, you know, that I'm hearing myself talk about this. It might be another one of the elements of my melancholy, too, is just recognizing it's not only that things that seem so important to me have now become objects in a book for younger people who weren't here, so they didn't get the visceral sense of it. But it's just the, the necessity of recognizing that the culture changes, too, in ways so that the relevant framework for making sense of it 20 years ago is, is not there anymore. Now there's a different framework. And however much you appreciate that, you know, I'm a social scientist, so I'm supposed to know that, intellectually at least, and recognize, of course, that's what cultures do. They never remain static. They have to change, inevitably. It'd be a bad thing, in fact, if cultures didn't change at all. There are some things which require transformations and adaptations and so forth. And yet, at the same time, there's a human part of me which is, which is saddened at the sense of loss of something that seemed unchangeable to me 20 years ago. One of the other things I, I, I mentioned in the book, one of the passages in the book that, that, that I still like most when I, when I look back at the book, it, my account of uh, going out to the site of the crash of Flight 93 for the first time with my wife. And this was before there was any plan for a, a large-scale permanent memorial or anything along those lines. There was a, a temporary memorial up on the top of the hill facing the area where the, the plane had struck ground. And there were some fences up, and there was a little post where members of the local parks service were, were there to help direct people and to answer some basic questions. And the way in which that experience resonated with me and still resonates with me and the, the relevant, again, body of meanings that I brought to bear when I was out there to look at that. So, I mean, what was I looking at, really, out there? It was just it was a, a misty hillside in the, in the middle of, uh, of basically central Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania, a windswept hillside, and it was getting towards dark, so you couldn't really see all that well out in the distance, and so my mind could conjure up. Uh, ghosts out in the distance, and and uh, you know I was thinking all the thoughts that a lot of people were thinking in the near aftermath of the attacks, and it just had an emotional valence for me and a power for me that was uh, that was incredible. And just as we we want to hold on to all sorts of those powerful emotional events when they happen to us, sometimes even the bad ones we like to hold on to because they're so they they make us feel. Our, our humanity, and they make us feel one of the one of the most essential attributes of our humanity, which is our ability to feel compassion and to feel emotionally moved. And so, just to recognize again that that's, in a sense, that time is gone and that experience is gone, 
and, and you move on. And it doesn't mean you can't, you won't have other experiences. And it does, again, you, you rightly point to some of the eternal aspects, or if not eternal, at least very long-lived aspects of the cultural approach to these kinds of events. There still is a way in which I think we, we mourn that as a loss. We, we see that as just as everything else that we, that we see in our lives passing by. I, I was reflecting on this with my wife the other day, how, how melancholy it is to see our children get older in a certain sense. You're filled with joy at the fact that, you know, here they are growing up and all the, all the promise of their, of their lives, especially as, they, as they're finishing school and moving on and they're going to go have careers and families of their own and all the rest of it. And there's, there's a huge amount of bliss and joy involved there. And there's also the sense that I have every day looking at my 16-year-old, I'm able, if I want to get myself to this point, I can get close to the point of tears just remembering what she was like when she was five and thinking about things that we shared, conversations we had when she was in kindergarten and, and the, the mournfulness, the glorious mournfulness, if you will, of that is such a deep part of being human. And as much as it's melancholy and it's, and there's a sadness to it, it's also, it's so important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cheat myself of it. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want others to be robbed of that experience just because I think it's so uh, elemental in what we are, in the, the kinds of creatures we are. There are works of art that have come out since 9-11. A novel like Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann centering on a high-wire walker like Philippe Petit between the two towers. Robert Moran, the respected choral composer, has written a beautiful requiem that stands the test of time, I think. We're going to hear it again. So those are ways of individuals coming together and having the stories or the impact last on. If we read that novel or we listen to that music, it's a different way that those stories live on. Right, right. And I, in the best of those artistic efforts to talk about that stuff, almost inevitably there's some rich combination of the specifics of the particular event that's being evoked, whether in this case the 9-11 attacks. And then, and this is maybe the thing that makes some of those stories and some of those works of art so resonant, that they, they tie that in to the, the broader, the more eternal the more, um, as a sociologist, we might say, the more the more structural elements of our of our experience, so that you're able to understand those things in a in a framework that, that again it, it helps to preserve some of the specificness. Strangely enough, some of the specificness of the event is actually helped in its preservation by by linking it into this larger process and by recognizing that this is this is something that human beings have been doing. For as long as we've been human beings, we've been mourning loss, and we've been recognizing this is, I'll start to sound like one of my students the other day who's, who's taken a number of courses with me and is in yet another of my courses this semester. We were talking about something in the very early days of this course, and she says in a kind of offhanded, I think she meant in a humorous way, or at least I certainly took it as a humorous way, but it actually was very profound as well. And I was making a point that ultimately this thing we were talking about had something to do with the deep question of mortality in human existence. And she, in her flippant, humorous way, says, you give that answer a lot, Professor Riley. It's like a lot of stuff has to do with mortality for you. In fact, most of it seems to have to do with this. And in in the moment when she said that, I kind of half laughed and said, you know, you're right. I think there's a reason for that. It's because a huge amount of, of what we're engaged in, what's meaningful for us, does get back to that question. 
one way or another. It does get back to, however meandering the path is back to that. That's the thing that gives some of the, the real meaning to our activities and to the things that happen to us and to the things that we value and to the things that we fear and the things that we pursue is just that recognition that we're, we're, we're mourning loss all the time. That's one piece of what our, our being on the planet is about. It's not the only piece. Again, you're, the, the fact that we're able to construe meaning from that and we're able to get value and we're able to go on and to live our lives and have, have joy and satisfaction and, and find love and all the other things that make, uh, make our lives so, so worth living. But that, that horizon of mortality and the, and the recognition that, that loss will always be there, we'll always have to find ways to deal with that. Collectively, human beings have figured out all sorts of very reliable ways to do that, to ritualize it and to narrativize it and to find ways to help people to reflect on it in ways that both they can make you feel trepidation at the same time make you feel a certain comfort in, in or at least in recognition of the thing. You're no longer as fearful of it as you might have been. Not, some of the 9-11 stories are harrowing stories. One of the ones that I wrote about that was hardest for me to write about in the book and that I, when I whenever I would talk about some of this stuff in panel presentations and other such uh, events, it was most difficult for me to get to were things like the, the people in the towers in New York City who jumped or fell from upper story windows in those buildings to their death on the on the ground below it's it's those are nightmares of the of an unfathomable variety and yet reflecting on them and recognizing that these things happen in our world and that there are ways of wrapping our heads around that and finding ways to make meaning of those things and to again, to fit the lives uh, of those people into a narrative which isn't just that story, that thing that happened to them at the end of their lives, but that is about their entire lives. There was a wonderful film made a number of years ago that was specifically about one of the individuals who fell or jumped out of one of the towers, and he had been identified on a photograph that made the front page of a lot of newspapers the day after the attacks. But we didn't know what his identity was at the time. And the, the photographs were seen as so problematic by some people that they basically were pulled and disappeared and didn't, didn't show up in public media after that for some time because people felt that it was, a, it was an intrusion on the, the last moments of this man who was, who was falling to his death. The movie was called uh, The Falling Man. It was about the effort to try to find the identity, discover the identity of this man, and if possible to, to reach out to his family and find folks who might be able to fit a larger narrative of his life and there was, a, there was a tremendous sense of closure for them, again, to go back to narratives. Narratives do a number of particular things fairly predictably if they're effective narratives. And one of the things that effective narratives do is that they, they don't leave us in the lurch with particularly troublesome and mysterious questions. We, we like to get at least some kind of closure of those questions, some resolution of difficult and agonizing problems. And so I think for, for these folks, that film and the people who made that film and the effort to try to figure out who this man was, that helped those people, that, that helped his people, you know, the members of his family, to bring that into a relief which was more comforting for them. At the same time as obviously the, the sense that their brother or their son or whoever it was for them died in this, in this awful way, that'll always be there. But to be able to, to fill that up with other content as well, 
helps to assuage that um, that suffering and that anguish and to make it more more livable. And that's really that's always what we're trying to do collectively and individually with these events to remember them and to to make them a part of who we are with the ultimate goal of making it more possible for us to go on in the face of loss in the, and in the face of the, the recognition of the inevitability of loss. Dr. Alexander Riley, professor of sociology at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, speaking with us about his study, Angel Patriots, the crash of United Flight 93 and the Myth of America, issued in 2015 by New York University Press. For more information, on the web, bucknell.edu, bucknell.edu, and Riley is spelled R-I-L-E-Y, R-I-L-E-Y. Dr. Alexander Riley, the book is Angel Patriots, The Crash of United Flight 93 and the Myth of America, issued by New York University Press. And again, for more information, on the web, bucknell.edu bucknell.edu